and people are like, oh, but they're Nepo babies. I'm like, should we kill them? Welcome to Log Off. Everyone has an internet story to tell, and today we're getting Joe Berkowitz's. Joe is an opinion columnist for Fast Company, where he writes about all things culture, including really thoughtful stuff about internet trends. His byline also appears regularly in Slate, The Daily Beast, and Vulture, where he recaps Saturday Night Live every week, and last year published a roundtable discussion about I Think You Should Leave Meme Culture, which I participated in. He's also the author of books including Away With Words, which is about pun competitions, and American Cheese, which is about cheese. I'm excited to talk to him about the online trends he's seeing now and how he keeps track of it all. But first, Joe, let's start at the beginning. As we always do, what is your earliest internet memory? I remember during the 90s when all of a sudden uh, the ads and newspapers for movies started to have URLs in them. And that was what drove me to the internet initially. I mean, uh, my, my dad finally got like a, a home computer with an internet set up, I think in maybe 1994. And then in 1995, Johnny Mnemonic came out. And I remember <laughs> sitting around with a, a few of my friends and looking up the URL for Johnny Mnemonic and being so excited to see this movie. Uh, I kind of want to revisit the website sometime. I, I doubt it exists. But I am so curious what I saw uh, and how that stacked up against the experience of going to see that movie, which I can't remember at all. I was going to ask, do you think it still holds up, the actual movie? Um, I, I'm curious. It's in the realm of The Matrix in that there's like a cyberpunk element to both of them. And uh, the you know earth-shattering success of The Matrix is such that Johnny Mnemonic is, uh, can only be a footnote to that. And so even if it's like really good if it plays really well right now it would still be a footnote so but seems worth reinvestigating all right so that was the first website you went to what other stuff were you like consuming once you really got into the internet groove you know i, I was like a, a teenager when when we were all figuring out what the internet was i guess web mm -hmm. 1.0 and i remember uh exploring chat rooms i uh, i met a girl in a chat room when I was either 15 or 16 and it couldn't have been more embarrassing. Like <laughs> the idea that you would be in high school and have to, and you couldn't meet someone that you had to go on the internet was just beyond embarrassing. Um, and I remember a few years later, even in college, like uh, a friend of mine met someone on the internet and it was still like chastise worthy. Beyond that, I really can't remember what kind of things I was I was uh, exploring back then. All I remember is one time I was printing out, I printed out lyrics for a, a Wu-Tang song and my parents <laughs> found them and were concerned. It was a, like a ghost face song, uh, I think specifically. And there was a, like a lot of weird free associating sex stuff in it. And they thought I was just on some like really weird porn shit or something and like had a conversation with me about it. I was going to say, if that's the most concerning thing they found, you were probably doing pretty well, but I forgot what those lyrics are like. So maybe not. Mm -hmm. That's what you were consuming early. Now you're like a pretty prolific creator uh, and writer. Were you creating anything back there then online? I, I wish I could say I, w I was. I remember uh, my wife told me that she made a, a fan page for the band Garbage and... <laughs> 
hearing her say that jogged a memory that I tried to do something like that. The music I liked in general, just trying to do kind of a curating type thing. Um, but I didn't get very far with it. I'm positive if I would, if my teenage self existed now, I would just have found so many opportunities to embarrass myself because I was like a, you know, in the corner writing poems kid in, in class when I was like 15 or so. And I would have been performing those poems live, doing anything I could on like on live and making TikToks and doing whatever else and just embarrassing the shit out of myself. Um, so in a way, I'm, I'm glad that I didn't have that experience, but who knows? There's a chance maybe I would have like failed a few times at it and then learned from the failure and gotten better and who knows. But, um, but yeah, I wasn't really putting anything out in the world, least of all digitally. Um, I was, I was like writing things and trying to force people to read them, but I didn't have the distribution <laughs> technology to make that easy for anyone. That's so funny. I never really thought about that. Like now kids just don't have the opportunity to fail in obscurity. If they want to try something, they can immediately put it out to the world and just get destroyed. It's probably not healthy. Yeah. I interviewed Jason Walliner once who was, you know, he's a, a comedy guy. He was in that uh, comedy group, uh, human giant with Aziz Ansari and oh, yeah. Rob Hubel and Paul Shear. He went on to like, I think direct the Borat sequel and he's done a bunch. He's done all kinds of stuff. Anyway, I interviewed him once and he talked about how important it is, especially now there's so much opportunity to put your early stuff out there to not put anything out there until it, until you, you're like really proud of it. Um, hmm. And that might've even changed in the year. Maybe it is okay. Maybe like having your failures be public. Uh, maybe there's new consensus on that. Cause this interview I'm thinking of was like, seven or eight years ago at this point anyway. But I remember thinking that that was, uh, yeah, just because you can get your stuff out there doesn't mean you definitely should. It's kind of nice to be able to see the evolution, I guess, if you get too deep into it. I'm kind of doing that right now with this podcast. Like I hope they're getting better each time. So I hope that when I look at the ones from a month or two ago, like they just look like trash and I can appreciate mm -hmm. the ones that I'm doing now. That happens with everything. I remember like watching uh season one south park in season four and being like oh my god it's a different show and i can't imagine how like that show would he, at all would like look now with podcasts as well like for a more recent example if you listen to episode one of anything that has been on mm -hmm. for years it's always a, a difference in comfort and sometimes in format and so much it's um yeah it's always interesting to see the evolution of something one of my favorite podcast is the Doughboys podcast. And they recently put out like their first episode, like they mm -hmm. took it out of the vault and it's just light years different. I mean, they were trying to do radio voice and now they're so laid back. I mean, they're on video and they're leaning back eating food on camera. Uh, mm -hmm. It's pretty, pretty interesting evolution. Um, so let's talk about your path to eventually leveraging the internet professionally. Uh, you're a writer now, but you didn't publish anything until your thirties. Uh, what were you doing before that? Well, I always wanted to be a writer and um, I, I didn't work at it as hard as I should have when I was younger. Um, and then I just had the idea that what I was going to do is I was going to edit books and uh, write them as well. And I got a very late start on a publishing career 
and I was uh, working really hard uh, in the publishing world, kind of, uh, but also I just was a little too old to be as uh, low on the totem pole as I was. Like I was an editorial assistant at age 27. And um, anyway, uh, eventually after a bad breakup, which is often involved in people's origin stories, I guess, I mm -hmm. started writing more seriously. I started writing like little uh, McSweeney's type things on, on Facebook and they were bad. But one of them I actually repurposed. I, I like worked really hard on it later on, and um, and I, I got it into McSweeney's. Um, but before that, even the very first thing, I had an idea for a book, which was going to be about. It was going to be called "We Were Promised Hoverboards." It was just about how things in movies and pop culture generally aren't like that in real life. And in order to possibly get to the point where I could get a book deal, even though I already worked in publishing, I, I started a, a blog and I was writing stuff on it and wasn't really taking off. And then um, I wrote about an experience I had. I downloaded a fake Death Cab for Cutie album. It was their album from 2008. Uh, I could not tell you the title of it. And it had the single and then every other song in the album was from a band that just sounds like Death Cab. <laughs> and I had been listening to this for an entire year before I found out that um, that this fake copy had been floating around and that it had been already uh, revealed as like this weird prank uh, <laughs> like a year before and I just missed it. So I had had multiple conversations with people talking about like the artistic evolution of death cab and on their new album. And then when I found out it was fake, I like, I never listened to it again. And it was just such a weird feeling that I wrote about it. And that was the first thing I ever got published. Yeah. I, I published it in the all, uh, oh, AWL yeah. I missed the all. was really awesome website, which I miss. And, uh, it came, it went, I got like three new Twitter followers and I was <laughs> like, well, that was a fun experiment. And then on Monday, um, Ezra Klein, who was then, I believe, at the LA Times, he wrote that I won the day in music blogging and, uh, and Andrew Sullivan, who's had kind of a weird uh, career journey since then, but he, uh, he wrote about it for um, another publication Anyway, to get that response, to be noticed at all in that way, in a positive way, was just this immediate uh, addiction. Or it just, you, I just wanted to, uh, just to know that that was possible. I had to do whatever I could to recreate that feeling. It just made me feel like the idea of me writing and putting stuff out, that I was on the right track, that I did have something to say. And uh, within two years of that, I was I had a job uh, writing professionally. I have to ask in 2008, like what service did you even download that album from? So after Napster collapsed in maybe mm -hmm. 2002, probably I had a roommate who was like a real uh, tech guy at the time. I was like, "What are we gonna do? Like the <laughs> the best thing in our our consumer lives right now is about to go." He's like, "I've already found an alternative." And, uh, it was, it's called soul seek. And I just used that for years. I mean, I, I bought music still, but that was just before Spotify 
there was no way to easily sample music and just to hear it first. So I used that and I never saw it mentioned once anywhere. It was, <laughs> I'm sure since then it's probably hit someone's radar, but yeah, it worked extremely well and I just used it for years. So that piece was your launching pad. Is that how you landed the Fast Company gig? Because you've been there a while, right? I got started at Fast Company because I had uh, I had been publishing with The All. I'd written uh, a few things elsewhere. The All expanded. They had a comedy website called Split Cider, a woman-oriented website called The Hairpin. And I, I wrote stuff for, uh, oh yeah, the, the comedy website. Uh, the editor's name is Adam Frucci. He'd worked previously with this guy, uh, Noah Robichon. Noah was now at Fast Company and they were starting an entertainment uh, and advertising vertical. And he was looking for someone who would be good in that role. And I'd been contributing things for, for free. Yeah, fuck, for free at <laughs> Split Cider. So Adam at Splitsider recommended me to Noah and they put me through uh, a few trials. Like I had to write about a bunch of different stuff. I wrote something about uh, Nature Valley's new activation and I interviewed Mastodon about something. And then I wrote, I, I wrote about a digital short that was popping off one day and that was it. Yeah. Then they hired me, but this is all in internet that in a media ecosystem that I don't know quite exists anymore. No, it does not. <laughs> and it's different every week. It seems like. Yeah. It's wild. <laughs> all right. So let's get into some of the stuff you've written lately for fast company, because I feel like you're really good at finding angles and topics that are, they're, they're very entertaining, but they also describe our kind of current cultural moment. If you want to use that phrase. Um, sure. specifically with technology and the internet. Um, so the first one I want to dive into is the alleged George Carlin AI stand-up set. I think most mm -hmm. people have like at the very least like seen headlines about this story, but it's had a few interesting twists along the way. Before we get into like any analysis, can you just like quickly recap what actually happened with this thing? Will Sasso from Mad TV, he and uh, his co-host on their podcast they have a third co-host who is AI. And uh, one day, I think about three weeks ago, they announced that um, their AI co-host, whose name is Dudesy, uh, he had uh, created an entire stand-up special uh, from George Carlin, based on having fed all of George Carlin's work uh, to him. And it just, yeah, so supposedly here's an, AI generated George Carlin hour of standup. Carlin's estate, who had already, you know, spoken out against it, they announced they were suing uh, the creators of the podcast uh, for using uh, George Carlin's work to 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 make this, you know, AI. It's it's AI generated, but technically, but you know, it's George Carlin generated uh, his intellectual pop property. So. Um, Anyway, uh, within the lawsuit or the article in the New York Times about the lawsuit, it came out that this wasn't actually an AI-generated special. Uh, it was entirely written by uh, the less famous co-host, uh, Chad Colchin. And so it was weird for me uh, to 
listen to the special um, knowing all of that. The idea of here is someone uh, pretending to be AI, it was interesting to, to listen to it that way. And um, if anyone feels like doing it, it is a fun kind of anthropological experiment, especially if you're familiar with Carlin's work. Do you think um, Carlin was like the perfect lightning rod for an AI controversy like this? I mean, I guess there's been, um, you know, there's the Taylor Swift one. She trumps everything in the galaxy. But like mm-hmm. Carlin isn't here to defend himself like she is. And his words were already being co-opted and it's sometimes like willfully misrepresented in the real world. Um, could anyone other than Carlin have like been a bigger name for this or more appropriate name? No, that's a good question. I, I think um, there would have, you know, like they could do Richard Pryor and it would have a similar impact, but it has to be, it would have had to be someone of that stature it had to be like a Pantheon comic. It couldn't, and they have to be dead, you know, uh, yeah. to have that kind of impact and have that kind of interest. And then also generate controversy. They knew they were going to generate controversy. Uh I'm not sure if they counted on being sued. They probably should have. But, you know, if it would have been like, you know, Dane Cook or Carlos Mencia or anyone, you know, who popped in the early aughts, someone like that, there wouldn't be the same level of interest. Carlin's work, it does keep coming up again because he said some things in a, a way that have been generationally sticky. He is a real tends to be a real dude's comic, but uh, he did really have like that talent to just say things and say them in such a way that they stuck around. I'm thinking of just the way he said, like talking about how they were banning toy guns, but they're going to keep the real ones. And yeah, the way he said that is just like seared into my brain. A lot of Carlinisms. So it was interesting to uh, knowing his work as I do. Uh, and what it means to people the, to listen to this. It's pretty obvious that it's it's neither AI generated or particularly good. It could <laughs> fool you at first because they have laughs. They have a, like a laugh track in on it. And the experience of hearing someone who sounds a little bit, if you squint with your ears, like Carlin talking as though uh, he's aware that he's dead, which is the case, that should have been the giveaway. I don't think an AI would have done that. Um, But it does hook you in a little. It's a good hook, I'll say. You know, these aren't great jokes, but just the spectacle of hearing a voice that sounds kind of like Carlin saying stuff to what sounds like a big crowd about, you know, hey, here's my, you're about to hear George Carlin's perspective on the world of right now, even though he is dead and aware of his deadness, that is, uh, it is something interesting. You bring up probably all the right issues. Like, is it ethical? Is it legal? Uh, But like the most interesting one to me is what you just mentioned, like the case of real fake versus fake fake, which is, Mm -hmm. as you bring up in the piece, it's nothing new. You reference the Horsey Books Twitter account. Um, mm-hmm. Can you summarize what exactly that was for people who weren't there for the Horse Ebooks Twitter moment? Yeah, there was this Twitter account called Horse Ebooks, and <laughs> it caught on with like hipster Twitter or media Twitter, 
weird Twitter, whatever they called, you know, these different sections back then, but it would just be stuff that sounds not like sort of AI generated before we would call things that bot generated, I guess it would be stuff like everything. So happens so much all the time. And <laughs> there would be, it would sound weirdly poetic or thoughtful, but also off. And I can't describe how much people ate the shit up. People loved it and they loved it because it was supposedly random. It really caught on. I remember being so annoyed by it. Eventually it was revealed that, it wasn't AI. It was just somebody's art project. And I was like, of course, of course, this was all someone's shitty art project, obviously. And then people sort of stopped talking about it. The whole time it was happening, I was like, why are people so interested in this? You could make this stuff up. It's not that interesting if you've made it up. And it's not that interesting if it is randomly generated. I just, I don't know. I couldn't think of one of them that, that, that was that was so... Great uh, as to get all that. I don't know. I, I sound kind of curmudgeonly right now. Whatever. <laughs> anyway, so that happened. And I I thought of that right away once I made the connection to person pretending to be uh, a fake person. Yeah, that speaks to the other really good point you make in this, uh, which is the motivation for actually doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, we had... Uh, Walter Shire on here a few weeks ago. He's a professor at Notre Dame. He was talking about like the history of fake content and what compels humans to even make this stuff. And we talked about like myth making and using it to provide social commentary. But, you know, in your piece, you outlined another factor, which I think is more appropriate given the like dopamine available online, which is that people are just doing it for attention. Yeah. Um, there's just been, uh, there have been a lot of people who've done this in the last uh, five years or so. The whole trend of like, I fed a, an AI every rom-com script and this is what came out, it was pretty clear that you could just write whatever that sounded kind of silly and clunky. And if it was clunky enough, but believable as something a bot wrote, then, you know, then people would pass that around. Uh, Yeah, a lot of people went viral that way. And this is before it became uh, pretty readily available, the technology, you know, chat GBT and everything else uh, where you could do that. It's uh, interesting that there still is a, uh, a benefit to pretending to be a robot, pretending to be a person. Do you think this one will actually pay off for the dudesy guys? Because I mean, they're getting a lot of attention. That's what they wanted. I'm sure their yeah. popularity is at an all time high. The view counts are through the roof, but they're also facing like a massive lawsuit. Yeah, it really depends on uh, if Carlin Estate sees the lost lawsuit to the end, um, mm-hmm. which they very well might because I don't know how they would eradicate every trace of the fake Carlin special. You know, it's it's you could find it even though the original YouTube of it's down. But, you know, I saw it the other day. Uh, so, yeah, if they don't get sued into bliv- oblivion, then they will come out of this with way more people knowing of their podcast. So uh, they may end up coming out ahead of this thing. Who knows? Yeah, they'll sell the rights to the documentary or something like that. Yep. I can see the Netflix documentary right now. Yeah. Okay. Let's go to another internet trend piece I enjoyed. Um, It was a bit of a social experiment or maybe like a social media experiment in which 
you chose to basically abandon all social media for three weeks, except mm-hmm. for LinkedIn. Uh, before we dive into like what you actually found, can you explain why you decided to put yourself through this? I have uh, kind of come to, a, or I came to a crossroads a while ago with social media. Uh, I, I kind of lost track of where my job ended and where uh, just dicking around on Twitter began. And it just felt like I was on online invested in what people were saying and how people were reacting to what I said uh, constantly, literally constantly. (laughs) Uh, And it just, uh, I I needed a change. I needed a big one and I knew vacation wasn't going to do it. So social media was a part of why I left my job. I had said I, I, to myself and to others that, well, I have to be this online. It's my job. And then I just imagined a world where it wasn't my job and I wouldn't have to, to, to do it anymore. And uh, I would uh, have an excuse to kind of put my money where my mouth was about the fact that deep down I didn't want, I wanted to see what it was like if I didn't do it. So anyway, I was able to leave my job and I stayed off of Twitter for three months and it was uh, amazing. It was incredible. I like for three months, Glenn Greenwald didn't exist and like <laughs> Ben Shapiro and I could give you so many other names. They just didn't exist for me. They were just gone. And it really was great perspective um, to, to live like that for a while. I can't say that like that it cured me forever, but it made me uh, desire to be regularly trying to step outside from it and figure out how I can optimize how I interact with, with, with social media. I left social media or I left Twitter at least right when, uh, right just before Elon Musk bought it. So that kind of overlapped. I thought uh, as an experiment, uh, what if I tried uh, something entirely new, which was LinkedIn? Uh, it's not new to the world at all. Uh, it was only new to me because I never really used it for my career in much of a way, much of any kind of way. And as Twitter got worse, uh, I saw LinkedIn met- mentioned more as like this calming oasis of social media and that it was now like where the cool kids were going, which whenever anyone says that it's always bullshit about anything. Uh, but anyway, I was interested and I, I knew it would make an interesting experiment. So uh, I thought, what if uh, I try only using LinkedIn for, for my uh, all my social media media needs for uh, the arbitrary period of three weeks it forced me to use social media a lot less because it's not designed as a hangout place. Uh, I, I think very few people hang out with LinkedIn and uh, I think probably by design, at least in part. And then also because who uses it versus uh, who uses the other ones. But yeah, uh, that's how the experiment came about. That's my long rambling story about that. What did that uh, full immersion process actually look like? Were you, I mean, how often were you posting? How much were you actually like sitting on there hanging out? As you said, that's not really what it's designed for. I would wake up in the morning and I tend to, for news to toggle between 
New York Times, The Guardian, and uh, CNN get a feel for what's going on each day, and then also what people, what you know, how it's being presented. Once I did that in the morning, and it was like you know, social media time, I would go to LinkedIn, and the news is only business and tech related news, and you can see what people are saying about it. And it was never that much. Uh, people tend not to to be jokey. It's not that there's a total absence of humor. It's just that humor can only exist in service of a point. It's never its own end on LinkedIn. That was what I found, was just nobody was uh, being humorous for, that, for its own sake. Sometimes that was kind of refreshing. It's uh, an experience, I think, on Twitter where something will happen and everyone is making the same joke or there's three variations of a joke to make and you are introduced to an idea and exhausted by it instantaneously. That doesn't happen on LinkedIn and it's kind of refreshing. Um, people aren't uh, on there just to be jokey. People tend to be like, I was at this conference and here's what I learned. I w was having a hard time hanging out and that seemed to be a good and healthy thing. I never spent hours on it. Um, uh, I, I, it doesn't seem like a lay in bed and scroll around app. <laughs> I've tried in the past to muster up posts for LinkedIn, and it just feels like the like the sardonic stuff that I like to burp up on social media is just not going to work. And then on the other end of the spectrum, the like rah rah cheerleader stuff and thought leadership content that probably would work just would feel disingenuous to me or like quote unquote selling out. So mm -hmm. like on the rare occasions that I have posted, it's extremely straightforward and bland. It's sterile because of like all that, I guess, uh, paralysis by analysis. But like what kind of process did you find yourself landing on to actually post stuff on LinkedIn? Well, the first thing I, I was like, I got to post something. And then I was just thinking about, I forget what it was. It was something about email signatures. I think, uh, yeah, I just had kind of a jokey. I was like, this is up LinkedIn's alley, you know, this just work like, culture. Thought, yeah. Yeah. I was like, this is, you know, people, yeah. I was, I was like, because the topic will be relevant, I can just make the kind of joke I might make on Twitter, but about this topic, people uh, did not respond at all. Um, and <laughs> It is hard to get noticed in any way at all first on LinkedIn. I think people just kind of interact with posts a little bit differently. I think eventually after trying one or two other similar things like that, I thought, what can I do that is vaguely influency? And so I, I went off a little bit about why I love writing emails to myself and that resonated with people a little bit. And I thought about... Um, my favorite advice from Mad Men, because my wife and I rewatched Mad Men recently and I was just thinking about it, um, which is just like, uh, I think Don Draper says, you know, to think about something really hard and then go do something else. Uh, or just, he doesn't say it that way, but that's the gist of it. But I was like, advice is what people do here. So why not? So, and yeah, people responded to that. And so, I never achieved any level of, uh, of uh, validating success on, on LinkedIn, <laughs> but 
I did feel like I figured out, you know, what was going to not get noticed at all versus what people would interact with at least a little bit. It was interesting to do that. Uh, it was also interesting that I saw people on LinkedIn that I have not seen in like a decade who had just felt fallen off my social media radar. Um, and they were killing it. Uh, and they were, <laughs> you know, just doing really well in their work life. And I really fully experienced the kind of FOMO you get from like when you're scrolling through Instagram and people are jet setting and you're at your desk and you're like, why aren't I doing that? My life fucking sucks. I felt that for, I'm like, why aren't I at that conference in Tokyo? What's, why is my career not, uh, why don't I have a title that I am, you know, with the word executive in it or whatever. I don't know. Um, yeah, it was, you can't help but feel a little bit more uh, fired up about, you know, getting your, being a better functioning adult professional uh, by being on LinkedIn. Yeah, you had a really good line in there about how it gave you FOMO for being a fully functional adult. Yeah. Uh, what uh, what percentage of uh, quote unquote adults on LinkedIn do you think are actually pulling it off versus faking it? I did think about that to comfort myself when I was like, "How is everybody like <laughs> at these these conference uh, conferences all the time? How are all these people doing so much and doing so well?" Um, yeah, I imagine there is some trickery there. Some of it was just um, realizing that. While I was uh, dicking around on Twitter, other people were making like like who I knew were making real moves in their life, uh, in their career. It was just kind of like seeing, getting a glimpse of how people live when uh, they see social media as a tool for furthering their career, keeping that separate from their career itself. Uh, I have blended the two and kind of found it hard to separate them. Uh, and it was interesting to, for three weeks to look at people who had done both their career and their social media so differently. And, uh, so it was illuminating that way. So, yeah, did you, I was going to ask, do you actually learn anything, anything from the experiment that you'll use moving forward? Or are you just going to go back to Twitter and all the Twitter clones? Well, I think it did make me want to maintain a presence on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a tidy ending for the piece, but it is true. Every now and then I have a thought that, or an idea that um, probably won't, you know, fit in something, some, like people won't appreciate it or like the people who generally like what I have to say in other places won't, but it might ride out on link, LinkedIn. Um uh, so yeah, I do want to maintain a presence there. Uh, and I had no desire for that before. So beyond just getting the content of that piece out of it, uh, it did make me want to, you know, not just disappear and not just regard it as um, a resume storage unit with a uh, networking mixer wrapped around it, which is how I saw it before. And I think, it, yeah, there is something more to it than that. Um, there's a subreddit called LinkedIn Lunatics yeah. that yeah. Uh, has, you know, some of the choicest examples of people who like influence a little too close to the sun and 
<laughs> come out insane. Uh, seeing it is a bit soul crushing uh, when you see people talking like that. Uh, I I like that there isn't the fake modesty around self promotion that there is elsewhere. Mm-hmm. I think we should be a bit, I, and I think people are starting to be more real about it. Just like, hey, here's my thing. I would love it not having to do a little preamble or pretend like it's nothing, but or you know, like like a cultivated air of blase about something you can tell someone's excited about. Uh, I I like that. However. Sometimes um, I'm like, you could use a little more shame about this. You know, maybe, maybe experiment with some shame. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, so there were there were drawbacks. But um, but yeah, I, I, I will use LinkedIn a little bit more or yeah, than I used to. Uh, and for, I'm going from not at all to occasionally, I think. You mentioned the uh, Twitter clones earlier. We talked a little bit about it. I really value your opinion on these things. Do you see a world where any of those clones actually breaks through and turns into that town square that Twitter had become? And what would they have to do to actually make that happen? Twitter has to not exist. Like it already is uh, a shambles, but Mm -hmm. it's still there. I'm still there. A lot of people are not going to 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 go to another place because um, if you hang around Twitter long enough, you get like some of what it used to be wafts in. So I, I, I could talk shit all day about what's bad about it, but I wouldn't still be there if what was good about it wasn't like hanging in the background like a shadow and then every now and then it, you like walk closer to it the experience would have to be completely destroyed like you just wouldn't yeah it would have to not exist anymore i think uh threads probably has a better shot than blue sky and then the other ones i they're off my radar and that could be more of a problem with my radar than the problem with them uh but i just don't hear any talk of mastodon anymore and I can't immediately think of what the other ones even are. When you say Threads has a better shot, is that just because of the brute force of Meta? It honestly, I might my judgment might be a little clouded right now because I have uh, some animosity toward Blue Sky. T- I had Blue Sky come after me yesterday. Um, I wrote an article. <laughs> what? I wrote an article for Slate, uh, my first, um, and it was about. It was like in reluctant defense of Nepo babies because I'm so sick of when I mention like the please don't destroy guys on SNL or someone else. And people are like, oh, but they're Nepo babies. I'm like, should we kill them? Like, should we not? What what do we do? We, you know, it's been a year plus more than that of like that word being coined, people talking about it and just like putting that label on all the time. I understand it, but it has kind of annoyed me because I think anything productive about it has already happened. And now it's just like, uh, it seems just bitter. And I think the things that are driving that bitter, like the class issues and the gatekeeping issues are very real, very worth discussing. I'm just kind of over the, uh, 
like being mad at people for being uh, the the sons and daughters of uh, established celebrity. Anyway, I kind of I knew it, it that I wasn't going to write it, and people were like, "Yeah, he has a point," <laughs> and like hoist me up on their digital shoulders and a. a Big account on Blue Sky retweeted it in a positive way yesterday or reskeeted it, whatever the fuck we're saying. And at first I was happy that a big account had done so and th- and in a positive way. And then I had to turn off notifications on my phone because people were saying like really, really mean things about like one of the first things I saw was like, I'm glad your industry is being ass fucked by Google. That was one God of the damn. first things I saw. And then fuck you. And then all these other things I could see was coming from a place of, of, uh, of class ideology that I agree with. And to be on the end of that kind of anger was pretty rough. So I don't know. Um, maybe that's coloring <laughs> my opinion today when I'm like, blue sky doesn't have the juice to make it, but it probably does. Um, and I'm just kind of, uh, a bit older and a bit less plugged in than a lot of people on there. And also if you talk to me in three days, when I'm a little bit further away, I will feel more positively. That's uh, all a long rambly way of saying that blue sky might make it. I I think some of my qualms with threads uh, are lessening, even though I I haven't, I haven't spent uh, a whole lot of time there. It seemed like I was seeing whatever else was complaining about at first, but just like nonstop brands, branding, brands. and the brands were branding. And um, I don't know. I, now I've, I, I see some stuff that reminds me a bit uh, more of what uh, being on, on Twitter in the good days was like, although I, I, I can't quite, you know, in, give it like a, a full throated endorsement yet, but. I'm seeing it get a little better than when I had an initial pretty negative perception of threads. All right. One more trend piece I want to cover because this is, uh, it's very interesting to me as someone who's both operated within corporate media entities. And then after breaking free from that, now I have several publishers as clients at my audience development agency. So like by definition, my job is to make, the little clients bigger and the bigger clients even bigger than that. And I have a, a serious soft spot for anyone who like breaks the corporate mold and starts something on their own. So this story, um, you published it in November. Um, it's basically everything to me. It's called uh, Why Worker Owned Publications Defector and 404 Media Are Winning. Um, you're very clear about like why and how digital media is a horrifying space to be like employed in. Um, and it's only become like more broken in the months since you actually published this. Um, so there's like no surprise that, um, worker owned publications have become like a trendy alternative to that kind of hellscape sometimes by, you know, choice or not by choice, uh, by talented people. Um, I haven't seen a really good breakdown of like the landscape until I, I read your piece. Can you talk about like what you found when you looked under the hood there? Yeah, um, the defector story is the one everyone knows. And it was, I think, the only one I really had known because I had been seeing 
uh, Hellgate mentioned a lot, but I didn't mm-hmm. realize that that was another co-op like Defector. So, you know, Hellgate w- is like Defector uh, worker owned, but it's people who know New York and how to report local in New York uh, extremely well, really talented, smart people. And um, they're doing great work and they're thriving. And yeah, I'd seen their stories on their coverage of Eric Adams. They've just broken so many mm-hmm. stories. Um, and I didn't even know that they were, that, what their situation was uh, because yeah, with Defector, it's like, you know, the story first, probably I, know I can't speak for everybody, but you probably know the story first. And then, you know, uh, it's kind of interwound with uh, it's very being, whereas with Hellgate, I had just seen the work and then later on found out the story. I had seen 404 Media happen and I had been thinking, this is a trend. And uh, <laughs> I was not alone in that. There were other articles written. In researching it and talking with a lot of people, it presented these worker-owned uh, organizations as the alternative to what I've been seeing as the premier alternative for working a digital media company or a regular or, you know, legacy media company, which is the Substack route. Mm -hmm. There are too many great writers, too many essential voices who are popular enough to obviously want to go where the financial, uh, with the incentive and the stability, mainly incentive of starting a, a newsletter that I'm just like, you guys should get together and invent the magazine. And that's exactly what Defector, Hellgate, Aftermath, 404, that's what they are. It's people who could probably, or definitely in a lot of cases, have a newsletter. But instead of that, they're working together to build something. And it's fucking awesome. And Mm -hmm. I think that has to be the future because once the old ad model became uh, no more, (laughs) nothing has emerged to take its place. And um, your options now basically are either uh, join or start a worker-owned publication or you better be popular enough to have your own newsletter. But I don't know. I, I... I seldom see uh, newsletter uh, pieces go viral. I'm sure there are plenty of examples of it that I can't, that I, but um, it just seems like it's harder to have that uh, feeling of what we're all reading today when it's just uh, what somebody's newsletter put out. Yeah, the newsletter proliferation reminds me a lot of like the the streaming services at this point where we all wanted that unbundling and thought we would, you know, support all these channels individually. Uh, and we wanted to do the same with writers, but now there's like so many of them, we're realizing, you know, the bill and the attention is has kind of gotten out of hand. And it's almost like you want a rebundling at this point. And I, mm-hmm. I think they, yeah, these are kind of like that a little bit. No, no, it's exactly like that. It's... um I couldn't wait to cut the cord on cable. And uh, now I wish you could just do cable a la carte. I wish we had like, you get, 
you get to pick your 20 channels. I, I wouldn't need more than 10, you know, or probably even yeah. less, whatever. Uh, I would like a bundling of some kind, but the uh, everybody needing to have one is has, was has been an experiment that has netted some interesting results, but it's been, I think, disastrous overall uh, to culture. And uh, I hope there is a trend in a different direction soon. I hope you're correct. Uh, one of the things you pointed out in here that's a, a really big benefit to these shops is uh, the freedom to experiment, which I think is valuable. Uh, but beyond that, not just like trying different content types, but being able to have the freedom to speak truth to power in those things. Because as these media companies were getting bigger and bigger, they were almost, I don't know, like they had shackles uh, hovering over the top of them about certain topics they couldn't uh, talk about or um, company lines they had to hold. hold. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and like what you saw when you were talking to these people about like the content they can actually deliver now that they couldn't deliver before? Well, yeah, um, everybody's beholden to somebody. David Roth, uh, he had some great things to say about it, uh, and but he recounted his experience at at Vice, where he was urged away from covering certain things, and you know that's direct interference. And then sometimes I think it's indirect, where it's just you'll pitch something, and people are like, "Oh, we can." <laughs> One of our sponsors, I, you know, I've experienced forms of this before where it just, it was just, you know, you don't want to rock the boat. And uh, I, I don't think that's a concern. I think there is more of an emphasis on, uh, God, I don't know. It just sounds corny to say it, but I was going to say an emphasis on integrity. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, it sounds corny to say it, but I, I, I think it's true. I think um, they are they're less beholden, even if they do have advertising. And I think that um, kind of gives them the freedom to uh, to be more fearless about who they're going to piss off. If there's going to be retaliation, it'll be open retaliation. It won't be the kind of retaliation of like your sponsorship is gone and now we can't afford to exist. They don't have the threat. There's no existential threat. It might be they make a powerful enemy who starts bad mouthing them in other publications or <laughs> a legal enemy, you know, facing the the Peter Thiel of it all. But it won't be, I don't think, you know, a kind of thing where uh you're not uh someone can't just on a whim decide that like uh you're too much of a risk and pull the plug. And I think, yeah, that, that's, that affords uh, freedom that a lot of legacy publications don't have. I think we both really like this model. Um, what do you think their biggest uh, risk or downside is? Like, what are the things they need to make sure they avoid? Is it just that kind of one-off mistake, like the Peter Thiel thing, or what do they need to watch out for? I mean, I think they do face uh, the same attention economy challenges as traditional media. There's churn. There's always a point when you get your subscription notification and depending on how much spending you just did, you can decide, I don't need Hellgate in my life right now. If there's a big story, it'll come to my attention. I don't need to support them this month. I'll support them again when I have a chance 
or when I'm, my pockets are doing better. Um, so they, they face that struggle the same as anyone else. Uh, and hopefully that just inspires people to, to keep up a standard of quality, not rest on their laurels and not assume that because they have you, they have you forever automatically. And, uh, and I, I guess it could be harder to hold on to that when there are, you are the adults in the room that you are occupying. Uh, but I think the, the people who are proving that this model can work, they're going about it in such a professional way that seems so far that they're not letting themselves slip. And uh, whether it's a mimicable model on a smaller scale will remain to be seen. But yeah, so far, it seems like they are aware of the uh, possibility of losing people and uh, doing what they can to combat it by evolving and continuing a standard of quality. Yeah, I hope it works. I, um, you know, regardless of, of how it actually turns out, I said, I think they're setting a very admirable example for people who might be aspiring to find an, another lane. Um, so what's next for Joe? Any uh, professional stuff in the works that we should know about? Um, nothing I can really talk about. Um, you know, I'm the kind of person who always has a creative project going. And mm -hmm. I uh, didn't mean to be cryptic, implying that there's already something <laughs> coming out that I can't talk about. It's just that uh, I it's more of a don't want to jinx myself kind of thing. So, you know, uh, I am working on things as ever. And... Um, Hopefully it won't all uh, have people coming out with their pitchforks like my <laughs> Nebo Baby article did the other day. All right. Let's not jinx it. Uh, okay. Let's get to our uh, stupid questions that we always ask. Uh, the first one is uh, tab check. Joe, right now, how many tabs do you have open on your web browser of choice? Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. The, two of those are dedicated to uh, running this podcast. So I would say eight then. Um, yeah. These answers are so much more restrained than I expected. I thought we had some real psychos out here. Is that a, like a typical number for you? Yeah. I always have my email open. I always have my calendar open. I have a document that I entitle this week and that's, I just schedule myself and um, I have my, my workouts. I have my, my work, uh, Everything, yeah, I have take dog on multiple walks. And just so I can kind of look back if I want to and see what I did uh, on any given day generally, you know, I don't get hyper specific, but just I can feel good. Like that was a pretty full day. Um, so I have that open. Uh, I have my letterboxed open. I have a Netflix tuned to... The movie Stronger, starring Jake Gyllenhaal, that's open. Um, I have my my Pocket, uh, which is a you know Pocket, yeah, news reading app. Exactly, have that open and uh, Twitter. The big old X uh, is staring at me from a tab. Uh, oh, and one more. Um, it's kind of silly, but I keep a gratitude list. Uh, every day I write down three things I'm grateful for because it can be really easy to forget that there are good things. 
And there what's are on the list states. today? Today, I am grateful for um, that I had a light work day uh, so, for something I can't say. Oh, <laughs> speaking of the blue sky incident, I'm grateful that I've had very little experience with everyone being mad at me. <laughs> it's, the it's happened like one or two times where I've like either tweeted something that went sideways or wrote an article that I probably shouldn't have. And like some kind of everyone was mad at me. That's one of my favorite all-time tweets, the one that's like every day on Twitter, there's a main character and your one job is to make sure you're not that person. Yeah, I've never been the main character, but <laughs> I've probably been some kind of side character before. I Oh, man. Um, nearly 10 years ago, I interviewed Tignataro uh, mm-hmm. about um, a special she did after getting uh, breast cancer and or you know getting a mast- double mastectomy and she took off her shirt in the middle of the stand-up set it was kind of like a big deal anyway i interviewed her about that and the piece i wrote at one point i made a little wordplay uh joke that was in poor taste i wrote <laughs> enthusiasm for her was spreading like wild cancer and uh I regret it, but I put that out there. And um, do you know who Zini Jardine is? Uh, Boing Boing, right? Yeah. So she went a little off the deep end later on, and I don't think people generally know who she is anymore. Um, maybe, but at the time, she was kind of more of a respected presence on online, and she's also a cancer survivor, and she tweeted about like with like a screen cap of it was like an added fast company and added me and was like, what the, what the hell, what is this? What's, and I was, I, my, I uh, nearly had a heart attack and I I was like, what do I do? What do I do? And I very quickly um, edited it, uh, edited out that comment and wrote a uh, editor's note at the bottom of the page saying, uh, a previous version of this article had an insensitive joke in it. Um, and that that's been corrected. And then I took a screen cap of that and sent it to Zini. And she was like, good, thank you. And that was the end of it. And I'm just thinking that that, that was probably the last set. Cause this is maybe 2015. That was probably like the last second when that's all that would have happened from that. Uh, I feel like this at this point, even talking about that is almost <laughs> like the kind of thing that like that that people would get mad that it had happened. Um, but yeah, that it feels like if that happened now, everyone would be mad at me. Um, oh, today yeah, there's, a, was, there's a screenshot. Someone puts it out and then gets quote tweeted into oblivion. That- to, to bring it back to the very beginning of our conversation, um, that was an example of failing in front of everybody, you know, mm-hmm. failing in public and you learn from it. I definitely knew not to, you know, yeah, to consider who might be with. And yeah, that was a, a learning for me. Uh, definitely. I can't believe you only have a few tabs open and one of them is a gratitude journal. Every time I ask that, I feel worse about myself because I have like 47 tabs going. It sounded cheesy when someone told me about the idea, but I've been doing it for like five or six years now. And the result is every day 
for at least one minute or however long it takes me to come up with three things, I'm remembering that not everything in the world is terrible because the rest of the day is generally reminding me of that most things are terrible. I'm going to do it. I'm saying it right now on the podcast. I'm going to start a gratitude doc, I think. Probably a Google doc. I'm, that's what it is. Yeah, it's a Google doc. Um, yeah, I will uh, hound you about that later on and see whether you did it or not. <laughs> all right. Sounds good. I will be grateful and I'll write it in there. Uh, all right. Let's get to uh, some of our questions about the good and the bad of the internet. When you open your social media apps right now, what are the algorithms feeding you? Lately, it's been... Uh, I get a lot of ads for weed gummies and I'm not sure if that's everybody getting those or if it just can deduce that I am a, uh, like an edibles enthusiast from other ways, but it's a lot. Uh, (laughs) yeah. And so that's something I feel like has been algorithmic me algorithmically deduced about me. I know the ones with, Tommy Chong, people were saying that they got those all the time a while back, but I get them from all over the place and I'm not looking at weed websites. So I don't <laughs> know how that's happening. Yeah. The, the Chong stuff is still out there on Twitter. I see it almost every time I drop into somebody's replies and I'm never sure. Like you said, is it deducing something about me or is this just, they're the only ones buying ads on Twitter now? Mm-hmm. Uh, what are some of your favorite accounts to follow on social media? Uh, Patrick Monahan's always uh, funny. I think the friendship between between um, Brody Gupta and Sarah Hagee is fun to watch. And then they're also individually both funny and interesting. And then also they're always seem mad about the right things. Um, <laughs> and uh, Samantha Irby, uh, the writer, uh, her Instagram, she's, her Instagram stories is a great curation of memes that I tend not to see elsewhere. So, uh, yeah, so she's a great follow. Um, Krang, he's always funny. Uh, the writer, uh, P.E. Moskowitz, very funny and, and interesting and articulate. Uh, can really, really come up with some incisive points about whatever people are talking about. Oh, and then whenever Linda Yaccarino tweets, it's always kind of an event, an event like how uh, people will dunk on it. Um, oh, and Jesse Hawken. Uh, I always like uh, hearing what he has to say and see him rile up the, the Marvel super fans uh, a lot. I'm going to put links in the description for all of those for people who are not aware of who those people are because... I follow all of them and they're all great. So nice, oh, okay, nice list. Cool. <laughs> uh, what is a corner of the internet people might be surprised you're interested in? I'm pretty, uh, kind of a basic bitch about this stuff. I, <laughs> I, I do Wordle. I cook NYT <laughs> recipes. I, I, I think the only thing I'm like obsessive about on the internet is something that anyone who knows me would guess, which is that I'm weirdly meticulous about staying on top of which movies are coming out on the streaming services. I have like a list that I make for myself. I, when, when they announce what new ones are coming out, I have a list and 
I sort of try to keep myself on a movie schedule because I'm the person who curates options for what me and my wife are going to watch. And then also we do this thing where at least one night a week we go our separate ways and I and she watches the shit that she could only watch without me. And I try not to always immediately go watch something. I try to also do something else sometimes. But yeah, that's when I'll watch a movie that I know she would probably uh, be bored with or hate. Um, so anyway, yeah, I keep obsessive track of what's coming out. And that's, I don't know if that counts as a corner of the internet, but that's, uh, yeah. <laughs> Wish I had a better answer on that one. <laughs> Have much. you ever started like thought about starting a consultancy when it comes to that kind of thing? Because my wife and I just scroll Netflix or can't decide every single night. If we had somebody like curating and lining this stuff up for us, it would change our entire life. I think. I've been wanting to write an article about the fact that I do this and about how mm -hmm. hard it is to choose stuff. Um, I just can't figure out. Um, exactly uh how to make it sound better than like sound different than just me saying like like i have it all figured out uh <laughs> but um i have thought about uh maybe making my lists live you know uh i have mm. a website because i needed it to promote i needed to have an official website to promote um my last book uh, and I don't do anything with it. And every week on my this week list of stuff to do, just about there's always an entry that says, "Think about what to do with the website." A couple ideas? Question mark that I like a couple. Of, and that's one of the ideas that. Anyway, so yes, I have thought about it a little bit, but uh, to your point, I have not thought about getting paid for it beyond possibly writing an article about this. You got to find a way to make money off of it. It's simply too good. As they say. Uh, as they say uh, yeah. uh, last thing that made you truly laugh online. I think it was the response to the the Dune two popcorn buckets. Like everybody was just shooting three pointers that day. There was so many funny ones. Everybody had funny things to say about that. I think. I love moments like that where everyone's just pouring on something, not in a hateful way, just making fun of it and making jokes. It's the best. Yeah, like way to go, team. We <laughs> we did it we once. Really did it. Um, see, yeah, see you again I, next month. We yeah, do it one more time. I got to it too late to come up with a joke. Like by the time I, I was aware that there was a Dune Two bucket, because I had just seen three amazing jokes with like very little space between them, and I thought it, and they were all retweeted by somebody else. So I was like, okay. The saturation point's probably a little high and one didn't occur to me right away. So I didn't stop and think about it, but um, yeah. Uh, all right. Let's get to the uh, dark side. What is the most scarring moment you've had on the internet? If you can bring yourself to disclose it. I, I think it would just be uh, stuff I've already described about uh, everyone being mad at you. Like that's scarring. Uh, there wasn't much of an internet when I was a, teenager when I think the most scarring things would have happened. So I emerged from that unscathed, but I did choose a career in media. So I have had moments where everyone is mad at me. I will also say that although it feels better in the moment, 
moments when everyone is very happy with you can be scarring because it stops. And uh, it's, uh, it's hard to describe what it's like when all the people you know and interact with all the time are suddenly like, this thing you did is great. You said something that we enjoy. Well done, sir. And that's just, it seems like there's a consensus about that. It's an amazing feeling and then it's gone and then it's very confusing um, and you can go after it in weird ways and for the wrong reasons because yep. you want to bring about that feeling again and you lose sight of the good reasons and the good ways. And I think that's a different kind of scarring than like my experience yesterday of like, oh shit, every time I look at my phone, someone's saying, fuck you. Um, <laughs> there, I think there, it's not good to get adulation or hate uh, in those kinds of doses. Um, yeah, it's better to be closer to the center. Um, how do you pry yourself away from your devices or log off? Do you have any special tactics that might be helpful for others? I, I have an app called Forest that mm -hmm. is helpful for me. That once I've said it, just the act of doing that, it dissuades me. It doesn't always work 100%, but having a little friction uh, of any kind is helpful for just getting down to it. I've set a period of time during this time. I do not. Uh, so how does this app work? You you basically set a timer for yourself to get off your yeah, phone? It's called Forest. And like during the time you are, um, it doesn't freeze anything. All it is is just like a way to keep track. You like set an hour and for an hour you are in the forest and little <laughs> trees grow on it. And um, I don't really like go, ooh, look at these satisfying trees. But just the act of doing something, uh, uh, just having some intentionality there, it makes you feel like you're not just free floating through the internet with what is time? Could it, has an hour gone? What, who cares? You know, you're not doing that. Um, there are some guardrails. And then also another thing I do is that like, it's annoying to watch a movie with someone who is looking at their phone all the time. Sometimes, sometimes it's totally fine if you're watching the kind of thing that's just like very pleasant background noise that occasionally you're fully engaged in. But sometimes you don't want that. And I have come up with something with a card that I could pull, uh, which is to say, Let's go theater mode. I say that to my wife when it's like a certain kind of movie or show or something like that. Like, let's pretend we're in a theater and that we wouldn't look at our phones. But you but you don't stay on your phone the way you might. You, you might glance at it. Anyway, I try to institute that every now and then if it's a certain kind of thing. I've only, since I came up with the concept, I've done it. Twice I've said, let's do theater <laughs> mode on this. Anyway, I don't know if that's helpful for anyone, but something I just thought of. I love 
theater mode. I'm going to implement that, especially since it lets me look at another screen anyway. So that's mm-hmm. great. Uh, where would you be without the internet? Uh, nowhere, nowhere. It, my, I owe my, <laughs> my, I owe my career to my, to the internet. And um, I'd like to think when I, I, I wrote a book about cheese and during mm-hmm. that time, I really came to appreciate um, traditional uh, careers and ways of life and working off the land and things like that. And I thought that if it came down to it, I would feel really good about having uh, a life where that was what I did for my work. Not cheese necessarily, but some kind of thing that has been around before the industrial revolution, let alone the cyber revolution, which I can't believe I just called it that. Um, (laughs) But yeah, something that's just been around since people were around that kind of career to be a scrivener. I don't know. I I like the idea uh, of doing that, but uh, if it was just the internet has just gone down uh, it's not doesn't exist anymore. Uh, I I don't know what I would do with myself uh, to have it suddenly disappear like that. That seems to be the common answer. I don't know if it's just the people I'm talking to or what, but everyone just would be very confused and not happy. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the uh, one thing on the internet you'd save if it all went away tomorrow? The thing I love about the internet most is it's everythingness. It's really not the individual great things. It's that there are so many kind of great things and a little bit great things, and it's so hard to single out one. Uh, I think the entire archives of The Onion, because that's a oh, digital-only publication that I think I could thumb through forever. Its archives are so dense. Their uh, hit-to-miss ratio is pretty fantastic, and especially if it includes ClickHole, <laughs> which... yes. I, I think ClickHole alone would sustain me for a couple years if the internet were gone, just to like be like that. That feels like internet, you know. That feels like a special internet kind of media that I would very much miss uh, were the internet gone. I think I'm going to go to ClickHole right after this. Uh, thank you, Joe, for this discussion and for your contributions to and analysis of the internet. This is Ryan Perry saying. Log off. The internet will be there when you get back.